coming up on Economics Explored. I think we also need to clarify that a well-being budget doesn't mean just spending more, like spending more on feel-good items. I think there is some misinterpretation out there. I think it's more about proper reallocation. Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Jean Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 148 on the 2022 Australian Conference of Economists, or ACE as we call it. The conference was held on 11 to 13 July in Hobart, Tasmania. In this episode, I reflect on the highlights of ACE with my colleagues, Dr. Leonora Reese and Dr. Cameron Murray, who I was lucky enough to catch up with at the conference. Leonora is the chair of the Women in Economics Network, and she's a senior lecturer at RMIT, the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology. This is Leonora's third appearance on the program. Cameron Murray, however, is appearing on the program for the first time, and I'm delighted that he agreed to share his thoughts on the conference with me. Cameron is postdoctoral research fellow in the Henry Halloran Trust at the University of Sydney. One of the big takeaways for me from the conference was the risk of unintended consequences from government policy interventions, and I give some examples of those in this episode. In the show notes, you can find relevant links and details of how you can get in touch with any questions, comments, or suggestions. Please get in touch and let me know your thoughts. I'd love to hear from you. Righto, now for my conversations with Leonora, who's on first, and Cameron, who's on second, on ACE 2022. Thanks to my audio engineer, Josh Crotz, for his assistance in producing this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Leonora, good to be chatting with you again. Thanks, Jean, for having me. Oh, it's uh, good to catch up here at the conference in Hobart. So uh, how have you found the conference so far? It's great to be back in person. So this is the first annual conference of economists in Australia since the pandemic. So it's wonderful to be surrounded by people again, uh, seeing people face to face, hearing the latest research. In some ways, it feels like time hasn't really passed. You know, we're seeing everyone again. Um, and there's some great research that's really timely reflecting on COVID, but also thinking about climate change, uh, politics, uh, immigration, the labour force, so many highly topical uh, issues have been covered. Absolutely. And we just had this amazing presentation via Zoom, alas, because he couldn't make it, by Martin Wolf, one of the editors at the Financial Times. And he was talking about a number of those issues and the crisis of democratic capitalism, which which I found yeah, really uh, fascinating presentation and gave us a lot to think about. And they're, they're issues I've tried to cover on the program in the past. So I was, I was grateful for that presentation. Were you involved in the organisation of this conference? This year I wasn't. So okay. the way that the conference works is each state or territory branch usually takes carriage of organising it. So this year, big shout out to the Tasmanian branch of the Economic Society who organised it. Um, I'm part of the Economic Society Central Council, a representative of the Women in Economics Network. So we were involved in organising the WEN sessions of the conference. So I was involved in that part. Okay, good one. So what were those sessions, Leonora? 
Yeah, so each year since WEN was created, that's the Women in Economics Network, that was created in 2017. So WEN has been a part of the program. We've held a special session where we've discussed some of the issues that are confronting women in the economics profession. And this year we talked about what WEN had achieved in its first five years. So we we looked back at what action we had taken to deal with this problem of women's underrepresentation in economics. So we were sharing um, some statistics as well as some examples of the initiatives that WEN had embarked on in that session. And it was more it was broader than just talking about gender. Uh, inequality. It was talking about diversity and inclusion in the economics uh, profession. So we held that special session. Uh, we made sure that there were females amongst the keynote speakers. We had Angela Jackson talking about the wellbeing budget. Uh, and Angela's a member of our, our WEN committee, um, but a very distinguished speaker in her own right. And that was wonderful to make sure we had females amongst the keynotes. And tomorrow we have a, a lunch uh, for WEN members uh, to come along and network and meet and, and talk about some uh, topical issues. Oh, good one. And so Angela's a co-author of yours Yes. on a paper I'd like to talk with you about. Uh, so you had a look at how COVID affected the economy here in Australia and how it had differential impacts by gender. So would you be able to tell us about that, please, Leonora? Yeah, thanks so much for the opportunity to to share this with you, Jean. We looked at the workforce impacts of the first year of the COVID pandemic in Australia, where we had very strict lockdowns, as well as the direct effects of the pandemic. And at the time, there was obviously a lot of interest from the news, from the media, from the government, what exactly were the impacts. And we knew that women were generally being more severely affected on average than men because of the gender patterns that exist in industries of employment. So we know that the types of industries that women are employed in, they tended to be the ones that were most affected by the direct lockdowns, particularly in the state of Victoria. Um, But then also women were potentially dropping out of the workforce um, because they were responsible for homeschooling, schools were closed, um, childcare uh, childcare wasn't necessarily available through Uh, for that duration. Um, And so we wanted to produce a systematic and statistical-based analysis of what exactly happened um, in terms of labour force uh, indicators, so employment, unemployment, labour force participation, and break it down by gender. Because I think there was a, a lot of talk and there was potentially some misinterpretation about what exactly those effects were. And and generally we saw a, a dive, a plunge in women's employment um, that was steeper than men's. And then towards the end of the first year of the pandemic, women's jobs did start to pick up again, um, which was a positive thing. And we were concerned that that was giving the impression that things were okay again. And even though there were huge numbers of women who dropped out of the workforce, just looking at those numbers climb again, it it potentially led to people assuming that that time out of the workforce hadn't caused any damage for, for women being detached 
those interruptions, losing your job and perhaps coming back again, but not being the same job that you had before, losing uh, your potentially your eligibility for leave entitlements. It's what we call scarring effects of economics. So, is this hysteresis? Is is that the old term for it? Uh, or am I thinking of something else? Uh, was that related to it? There was that idea that if you had a period out of the workforce that reduced your, well, you lost, you lost the attachment, it can affect the your marketability in the future so it can have these long-run consequences yeah that that is the concern about people sort of getting stuck in that state of unemployment or market labor force detachment that's exactly right so we were looking at net numbers aggregate numbers so we weren't necessarily following the same individuals to Mm. see potentially uh people who dropped out of the workforce who lost lost employment and didn't re-enter but that would have been a concern behind the scenes. Right. And actually when I presented the paper here at the conference, there was an excellent question about long-term unemployment. People would become entrenched in unemployment or drop out of the workforce and don't re-enter. So that's part of that concern about hysteresis as well, people R- getting stuck and not. Right. And that skill erosion and perhaps that lo- lack of confidence to re-enter again sort of are, are some of the dynamics that can explain what you're describing there. Right. So I've got a couple of questions. Yeah. Uh, you, you looked at the Australian data. Do you know if this happened in the US and the UK as well? Was this the she session that they talk about? Yeah, so this was very much a global picture. You're right. So we were hearing this from the US, from Europe, from the UK, from many other countries um, throughout Asia, um, Canada, that it, there were terms like it was a, a she session, a play on the recession, but um, emphasizing the gender element of it. Um, And the thing is that this is very different from past economic downturns. So in our analysis, we look at what happened with job losses job losses during the 1990s recession in Australia and during the global financial crisis around 2008. And what you see with the economic downturn, the recession that occurred um, as a result of COVID, women's share of those total job losses was a much higher proportion than what had occurred in previous economic downturns. And why that matters is because it meant the policy responses needed to be different. That was stunning. So I was struck by just the proportion of the jobs lost in the early 90s recession here in Australia that were lost by men. What was it, 90% or something? And I guess that makes sense because at the time, the industries that that suffered were manufacturing industries or construction because we had the colossal property boom in the 80s and then the crash. And so they were industries dominated by men. But this time, and this is what you found, I think, isn't it, that it it was those sectors where women were disproportionately employed, such as hospitality. Yes, that's right. Um, So it was the pattern, the pre-existing patterns of employment. So looking, for instance, at retail trade, but what are the types of jobs within retail trade that women tended to be employed in, in things like clothing stores, um, forward fronting customer service roles, uh, waitress, uh, waiter jobs in hospitality, whereas uh, males tended to be employed in things like in retail, but in electronic stores or building supply and hardware stores, which actually were all booming during the pandemic because of all the incentives for people to stay at home or invest in these other things. And things like shelf fillers or deliveries and transport behind the scenes rather than 
face-to-face customer service. So these pre-existing gender patterns of employment, as well as who's doing the bulk of caring and uh, caring duties at home and who takes on the majority of the homeschooling responsibilities meant that there were demand side factors as well as supply side factors, um, putting a lot of pressure on women's capacity to retain their attachment to the workforce as well. Okay. I might ask you about your highlights of the conference. I can tell you mine so far. I think, I mean, one highlight was definitely Martin Wolf's presentation, which made made me think a lot about, well, how do we get that balance between having a market system which provides the goods and services we want that's dynamic, that allows for, you know, that that is uh, compatible with individual liberty, but at the same time avoid a system where we have uh, monopolisation where we have money getting into politics and corrupting it and inequality widening for various reasons, including monopoly because of the big tech platforms, the big tech giants, uh, people being able to earn money uh, globally because of these platforms. And then uh, if you've got an advantage that can be magnified by the technology, also skill bias, technological change, all those reasons. How, How do we deal with that in a way that, keeps the incentive to innovate, but means we don't have inequality that could be uh, politically devastating. And I mean, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm just saying that I thought that was a great presentation and hell very. And I mean, that was amazing talking about how they're using all of the Google trends data to now cast the economy. So unemployment claims just based on people searching where's the local unemployment office in Michigan or wherever. So I thought that was great. But how about you, Leonora? What were your highlights? Oh, I haven't been able to see everything on the, on the uh, program, which is frustrating when there's so many options and you can't see them all. The keynote speakers have been fantastic this year because they've been so timely. The topics, the issues that they've been delving into, I thought Hal Varian's uh, illustration of how we can use Google data for economic analysis, really enlightening. Um, there's so much capacity there. I, I'm looking forward to hearing Joseph Stiglitz speak tomorrow. So we haven't come to the end of the program and he's um, he's obviously an eminent voice in terms of inequality issues. I really enjoyed Angela Jackson's keynote address at the start of the conference and Angela talked about a wellbeing budget and put a lot of thought into what would be the dimensions of wellbeing. And also she brought up some really potentially confrontational issue. She did talk about how do we handle domestic violence um, and family violence. Um, and, and I think that was an indication that these are some hard topics that economists and policymakers and researchers need to deal with. And I, I mentioned that as a highlight because I really don't think in past conferences we've been uh, empowered or, or bold enough um, to bring up some of these confrontational topics. Mm. I think that's true. I want to see how this wellbeing budget is implemented in practice. I mean, as a former Treasury bureaucrat and someone who worked in budget policy division, I, I, I'm i just not sure what it's going to mean and whether it's, is it just a, another chapter in the budget and hence more work for Treasury analysts uh, or will is it a fundamental rethinking of how the budget process works and how the, all of these policy measures are assessed? Will there be an explicit wellbeing score? I, I don't know. Like We have to see exactly how the government is going to implement it and whether it is something that really will mean that the budget is 
reformulated or rethought of as something that's explicitly dedicated to improving well-being and therefore you would look at the whole range of government expenditures and activities. Is it that or is it just something that is just going to be another glossy budget document or something or, or something that the, the government of the day can sort of wax lyrically about but doesn't have any real practical imp implications? That, that's just my natural scepticism. Well, I'm so I'm, yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not knocking it. I, I just want to see how yeah. it's implemented. Yeah, look, I think it's a really healthy degree of scepticism to have with any government. I sense that this government is really sincere and actually quite well informed by the research because as your listeners will know, there are very deep and comprehensive streams of research looking at measures of multidimensional poverty or disadvantage, which is really part of that literature on what constitutes well-being and, and life satisfaction. And I think the takeaway here is when we think about a well-being budget, it's about broadening the suite of indicators that we monitor and we care about. So it's not just GDP or inflation or wage price index, but we include a, a wider and fuller list of economic indicators, including measurements of inequality. So I imagine that if you're constructing a wellbeing budget, you'd want to compute a Gini coefficient, for instance. So at least inequality is going to be on the minds of your policymakers. It becomes more salient so that when they're developing their policies, they're not just thinking about how do we increase GDP, but what is the distribution of those, those prosperity benefits? So they could ask, how do these particular budget measures affect inequality, affect the Gini coefficient? Is that the... Is that what you're thinking? I, potentially along those mm. lines. That's right. So it's it's thinking about measuring success along a broader spectrum oh, of yes. dimensions of real world impact. Yeah. Okay. So every budget, as well as rep providing the economic outlook in terms of GDP and, and talking about what the budget aggregates are, you could have a reflection. The government could reflect upon what's happening with some of these other indicators such as inequality and and, and uh, yeah, Angela mentioned a whole range of things they could be uh, interested in targeting in the interests of wellbeing, mental health, uh, reducing domestic violence. Which, you know, the budget contains a lot of that already. Yes, And yes. it's about pointing out that um, actually a lot of that contributes to GDP, which we know, like if you've got, if you invest in your mental health and, and physical health and community inclusion in your population, that are all, they're all ingredients towards making people, or supporting people to become more productive as well. But I think it, it will probably um, find that there are a lot of um, government initiatives that are in place that are supportive of wellbeing. And this is, this is, I guess, perhaps justifying that expenditure in a broader set. I think that we also need to clarify that a wellbeing budget doesn't mean just spending more, like spending more on feel-good items. I yeah. think there is some misinterpretation out there. I think it's more about proper reallocation. So you could say, well, look, let's not go ahead with these hypothetical, say, tax cuts for a higher income bracket because that will have a negative effect on the on the Gini coefficient. It will detract from income inequality, uh, income equality. Um, and so we we then have um, a, another benchmark of impact to consider some of these redistribution or reallocation decisions. It doesn't mean spending more. It just means spending things in different ways. Yeah, fair point. Okay, Leonora, thanks so much. Great to catch up with you here in Hobart. Thanks, Jean, and thanks for uh, running such a great podcast. Thank you. Okay, we'll take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. 
If you need to crunch the numbers, then get in touch with Adept Economics. We offer you frank and fearless economic analysis and advice. We can help you with funding submissions, cost-benefit analysis studies, and economic modelling of all sorts. Our head office is in Brisbane, Australia, but we work all over the world. You can get in touch via our website, www.adepteconomics.com.au. We'd love to hear from you. Now back to the show. Cameron Murray, good to be chatting with you. Thanks for having me, Jane. Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, we've both finished the Conference of Economists for uh, 2022 here in Hobart. Uh, we just had the lecture by Joseph Stiglitz. And uh, yes, uh, it's been a, a busy few days. Uh, how have you found the conference, Cameron? Yeah, pretty good. Uh, pretty broad range. I think the you know I've been to this conference many times. I like it because you you'll find a few people that study related topics and you can catch up with your mates who research your area and then you can sit in on the random ones. Uh, your your session was what called mis- miscellaneous. Yes, yeah, a bit uh, random. which was actually pretty good. I think most people enjoyed uh, you know a variety of discussions that you just don't really get a lot of smart people in one room to chat about that often. Yeah, it was a good time. Thanks. Yes. Yeah. That was an interesting, uh, that was an interesting session. We, we can touch on that uh, a bit, a bit later. Uh, I thought it'd be good to chat about our highlights of the conference and, and also what the themes of the conference have been. So I guess on the themes, there was a big theme, it seemed to me, of economics in the the new normal it, there's that i think that was actually the the designated theme of the conference something about the new normal and there was that speech by martin wolf where he's talking about the crisis of democratic capitalism and then joseph stiglitz today was talking about the post neoliberal order so there seems to be this general recognition that things need to change i i i still don't know exactly what they're proposing that uh yeah, yeah I, I got the same impression. There's a lot of, oh, we're at the end of some era and something's happening and I, it wasn't clear why, what specifically is not working. Uh, I don't, I'm not a big believer in, you know, uh, labeling of things. Oh, this is proper capitalism. I'm like, well, you can have capitalism and a good welfare state and good public services and, you know, uh, all of that functions well together. It's not clear that we need a new label. Mm. Um I think we do have a lot of things right, um, so I, I did. I found that a little bit um, unusual. I thought Stiglitz was right in terms of e- economics as a discipline evolving, and I, I can observe that. I've been involved um, after the financial crisis in that rethinking economics in those groups, trying to add some color and flavor to your economics education because it can be a bit dry, like a bit straight uh, with the neoclassical um, view on things. But in terms of actual policy, yeah, it's not wasn't super clear to me uh, where it's going. But it was kind of unusual to get that feeling that everyone thinks there's some change happening. Yeah. So you've got a blog, haven't you? Fresh economic thinking, and I, I found that interesting. What you were saying about the teaching of economics, and you you said that you've tried to give it a different flavour. What what sort of what what sort of things have you done? What have you tried to emphasise in your teaching and your or your writing? 
Yeah, well, maybe let me give you an example because uh, Joe Stiglitz, one of the last things he talked about was, well, we use Robinson Crusoe as this example of production and um, and when Friday comes, we talk about specialization. And I, I use that to say, well, yeah, that's one element of the coordination problem when you've got two people. Uh, does someone pick the coconuts and someone go fishing? But, the, you know, that example allows us to think more broadly. Why is someone better at picking coconuts? Who taught them? Who has the fishing net and why do they have it and not the other person? Can they be more productive if the two of them go fishing on one day using a net holding one end each and then the two of them pick coconuts the next day by helping them climb the tree? Like these, you know, the, the coordination problems are much more broad than uh, I guess the way we're trained to think about it. And I think in economics training, if we can think more broadly at a, at a, as issues come up, we can maybe see where there's these net improvements on the status quo. And that's kind of what my blog is, is thinking of, is there a different angle to this problem? Is this really a coordination problem? Is it really specialization? Is it this? Is it that? You know, when I look at housing, for example, I was writing about the shared equity proposal. I'm like, well, is this the best option? Is this, why isn't a hundred percent equity better? Right? This is the proposal where the government will buy 30% of a house for you as an equity partner for first home buyers. Oh, they're going to go ahead with that, aren't they? Because they, yeah. won, they won government here in Australia. Right. And yeah. someone at the conference yeah. was telling me the, the details are being worked out. Can't say yeah. anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, I think we got to think, well, that's one policy and we can look at it. But we should be tweaking at the edges as well and going, well, if 30% is good, why isn't 40% better? And if 40% is better, why not 100%? And if we're at 100% equity, where sort of the government owns your house, that's public housing. Like, we should be, <clears throat> be a bit more expansive in thinking about how things fit together. And that's what I try to do. So we're reportedly having a housing crisis here in Australia. And... You've previously commented you or you've recommended a Singapore model, haven't you? Is that is That's that right. what you're driving at with a hundred percent equity? Oh well, I, I could, my example, for example, uh, in that blog post was the Land and Housing Corporation New mm. South Wales that owns all the public housing stock, and the value of that housing stock went from thirty two billion dollars in twenty twelve to fifty four billion dollars in twenty nineteen, and like that's a really good return on equity for a government if we consider that as an independent entity making $20 billion in seven years in terms of the value. Um, so that was my example of, well, you know, we're going to start another fund over here that's going to buy equity in people's houses. We have a fund here that's buying equity. We're just not conceptualizing it this way. We're only looking at the costs and we're ignoring the fact that what public housing is, is an equity investment. So that's the expansive way to think about it. Right. Okay. I'll put some links uh, to your blog in the show notes, and also some of the reporting on your uh, your uh, recommendation regarding that Singapore model. Great. Okay. Um, might go over the what I found were the highlights, and I can ask you about yours. So I thought papers that really struck me as uh, as something I wasn't expecting or or they made me think differently there was an analysis by this uh, recent graduate master's graduate from harvard nicole kagan not so super and what she showed was that that uh that policy during the covid period here where they let you withdraw ten thousand dollars from your superannuation balance and it was a lot easier than you know 
the normal requirement where you had to demonstrate hardship. And uh, she was making the point that you could it could actually backfire on the government in the long term due to the fact that um, it's reducing their super balance and therefore the government would have to pay them more pension in the future. And she had some calculations and that illustrated how that could occur. I thought that was I thought that was a good a good analysis, a good paper, and it just shows those unintended consequences and just how mm-hmm. look there. Whenever you're designing a policy, there's probably or there's possibly a lot better way to do it, and so you should be thinking laterally about That's the types exactly of policies. Right. Yeah, I thought hers was very good as well because she didn't just say this is the result of this policy. She said, "Oh, here's another policy of a an a, a interest-free loan." Yeah. And what was the other? That she had a third one as well, and said, "Here's something else." And now I'm going to compare all three of them, and I feel like that's a really fundamental economic approach of saying, yeah. "Well, this is a good policy. Look, I showed you." It's like, no, what are all the alternatives? And we should be picking the best one because if we can beat this, we should, right? So I thought that was very good, and that was my comment to her as well. There was another, and it might might be related to your presentation as well, uh, that the government could have let you take your super or it could have bought your assets from your super and given you the cash and held those assets in its own fund and got the you know compound growth or whatever. And um, therefore, the government would have had that those future assets to pay you back when you got the pension, if you know what I mean. So you could sort of draw a little circle around the super early release program and take that forward through time by the government owning those assets in its own, you know, federal treasury super account, <laughs> right, and then paying the extra pensions to you in the future out of that account if it wanted to. So you know, that's just another alternative. And she she evaluated three, and I I I really like that approach and was enthusiastic to to look at more. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I thought it was uh, I thought it was good. The other papers I liked, Stephanie. Shura, who won Young Economist of the Year Award, she looked at a paper, well, her paper looked at this NT intervention, so various measures in the Northern Territory to, uh, well, to reduce alcoholism or to reduce uh, domestic violence and sexual abuse in in the Indigenous population there. And, uh, yeah, she had this, uh, I think it was some difference in differences Model shared this methodology to identify what happened in in Alice Springs when they introduced a minimum price of alcohol to try to reduce the drinking yeah, of right. the cask wine, and and it 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 didn't have the effect that they necessarily expected when they looked at well, what did it mean for uh, babies with uh, the birth weight of uh, of babies, and what seems to have happened is well, there was some substitute they did stop drinking cask wine, there was a big drop in the consumption of that, but then there was an increase in consumption of beer and other alcohol That's right. to an extent, so there was some substitution there, but also smoking, smoking increased. Yeah, it did. That was pretty clear in her data mm. and one of the main results, wasn't it? And I, um, I think that's actually a result I've seen elsewhere of trying to um, change behavior with the sort of syntax approach where you mm. tax the behavior you don't want to get um and i think we get that in cigarettes and marijuana and things like that that um there if there are substitute ways to get the the broader consumption good (laughs) yeah then you'll find them yeah yeah so i thought that was a good illustration of the 
the possibility of unintended consequences yeah, exactly. that you can get with policy. And as was uh, Nicole's paper too. I mean, um, right. Oh, okay. The other one I thought was uh, was great was Warwick McKibben's paper on COVID. So he went over some modelling results of his early in the pandemic. And uh, I mean, Warwick was uh, claiming, I think he's probably right about this, that he, he got reasonably... I mean, his estimates were probably better than anyone's in terms of the ultimate economic impact. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it came from voluntary uh, people voluntarily Mm -hmm. withdrawing from the labour market or... uh, I wasn't in that one. Can you explain what what did he predict uh, and why? What was the main... This this was a paper he released in February of 2020. Uh February is very early in 2020. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he saw that... COVID was spreading in China and it was going to come to the end. I think it was in Italy at, at the time. And he used his, uh, what is it, the McKibben-Sachs global model, the MSG model, or was it G-cubed? He's got some global economic model oh, that he right. originally built with Jeffrey Sachs at Harvard. When, Did not know that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So he's, yeah, he, and he sold it to all of these uh, uh, finance ministries. I think Treasury had a copy when I was there. Uh, so it's it's this. Uh, how would you describe it? Well, it's a general equilibrium, uh, general equilibrium macroeconomic model of the global economy, um, and he was projecting. He calls them simulations. He's not calling them forecasts. He mm-hmm. made a joke today about how he doesn't like doing forecasts because you're only ever going to be wrong. You're never going to nail it precisely. Scenarios and simulations. I think that's very wise. So I think that's very clever of Warwick to do that. And and he was showing what GDP deviations he was getting from his assumptions around around how COVID would spread. And then he had endogenous policy responses, or actually they may not have been endogenous. He, He must have assumed what policy responses would be uh, in terms of fiscal policy and then monetary policy, he knew that governments would respond and so that would help the economy recover. And he was showing that, yeah, he had those, the big GDP losses to begin with, but then the V-shaped recovery or the rapid yeah. recovery. Right. And so Warwick was claiming that, uh, <laughs> and he's probably right. I mean, Did he get the inflation uh, element as well uh, of the sort of second half of last year and this year? Because the V-shaped recovery, that yeah. I remember, remember there was a big debate, V-shaped recovery, W-shaped recovery, is there yes, another double yes. dip? Uh, uh, there was a, a lot of chatter and um, I think obviously he was right on that. But what about the inflation part? I think he was. He may not have got it to the uh, – uh, he may so, not have predicted yeah. as much as it has occurred, but I'll have to check that. I yeah, think he I'm did say something about that. I just can't remember off the top of my head. I'll put links in the yeah, show great. notes for the – to that paper, uh, yeah, I found that fascinating. One thing he didn't predict, and he was he was surprised by, he was really surprised by just how badly the United States did. Mm. Like he was modelling the the COVID infections and mortality, the COVID deaths, and his prediction for the US was too low uh, mm-hmm. because in his model he was basing the health response. So he had the the epidemiological development of the disease, so that, yeah, the infections and the the deaths, he had that related in part to the 
uh, public health system or the public health response. Uh-huh. And because of the US, because of the CDC, it came out high in terms of public health. Oh, yeah, yeah. So public health effectiveness. So That's in right. his model, US had high public health effectiveness. Uh-huh. And so that was cons- reducing the his Spread. yeah his estimate mm-hmm. of what the uh what would happen in the states and uh and when we all know that it just didn't work i mean they may have had the cdc and but they just for some reason or another that yeah something something didn't work <laughs> without without <laughs> Fair enough. Well, you know the assumptions matter don't they yeah yeah Look, yeah i'll tell you that one of the standout presentations for me was halvarian the chief economist oh, yes. at google loved it yeah um and I think simply because he's got the inside run on all the data and he's shown, he, he had a great method um, of augmenting your traditional time series forecasts that have seasonality and trends with a, a, an additional regression that um, selects for the most useful search terms out of Google Trends and then uses them as predictors in the regression part of the overall model and was pretty good at predicting a lot of um, economic outcomes from Google Trends search data, which I thought was pretty impressive. But I I, I guess we kind of all accept that that happens. But what impressed me more is they have a Google survey tool that you can put as like an ad under a news item and people get credit on Google Play or something if they fill in surveys. And so you can do these really rapid surveys and it will distribute them to readers of news that meet certain criteria. And it replicates really well these uh, well-done official surveys that sample representatively across society based on census records of types of people and where they live. It, it, it replicates a lot of findings by being completely non-representative and just flooding the internet essentially with this survey. Uh, and so he, the message he was sort of saying is we don't know if representativeness is that important, but you can find out cheaply and quickly by just doing a Google survey to augment your official survey where you've got, you know, representative samples from different parts of the country and different age groups and, and so forth, which, you know, we obsess about sampling and he's now saying, well, as, as long as we throw it out to the internet, sometimes it doesn't really matter. Was, yeah, a, yeah, it's it's good enough. The results are good enough. It may not be as precise as a, a random survey or a survey done by Roy Morgan or Gallup, but it's going to be good enough for what mm-hmm. most people are going to yeah, need yeah. it for. And yeah. especially picking the trends, right? Is this declining in interest or rising interest? You'll get yeah. that sort of stuff very quickly and cheaply. Um, so I immediately uh, went back to my computer after that session and uh, looked at housing markets and predictions and and tried to catch up with the state of the literature on that and it's booming right now. So I think um, yeah, that's, that's going to be something we'll hear more about and I, I expect, for example, in the next five years we'll probably have a new house price index that is informed by daily Google search trends, uh, like a live you know, modelled index on, from this type of stuff. That would be my expectation given that people are already trying to do that. Yeah, because CoreLogic put out a daily house price index, I think, don't they? They do put out a daily index, but um, look, there's a lot of assumptions because you don't get the sales data until the settlement and the price was negotiated 30 or 60 days uh, beforehand. And over a longer term, it works well and it seems to pick turning points well. Um, But I think if if you're in the market for producing 
high frequency index like that and you can augment that with Google Trends, I think you would dominate that market because people would um, put more stock in yours, you'd get more press coverage, you'd become very dominant. Right. So I'd be very interested in if CoreLogic is, has got people looking at this. They obviously have a lot of data nerds. Um, yeah. But but that, you know, you, you might see live daily trackers of many things. So it could, could be an interesting new world. Uh, at the next conference, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was uh, that was great. That now casting session, and yeah, I chatted with about that with uh, with Leonora. I'll put a link in the show notes to, regarding that too. So on housing, Cameron, you presented a paper on housing, didn't you? Would you be able to tell us about that, please? Yeah, so uh, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, there was a lot of um, very detailed statistical modeling at this conference and mine was the exact opposite. Mine was just here's the data on the rate of production of housing from new major subdivisions in Australia. Um, Because the argument that we have at the moment is a planning regulation stopping supply and keeping the price of housing up. And my question is, well, how are planning regulations stopping supply? Because we can observe in practice all these major approvals with three to 20,000 approved housing lots, and we can observe how quickly they supply after the approval. And what you find is that during an economic boom, these uh, property developers will sell at a rate that's 30 to 50 times faster than when it's not a boom. So they'll sell five a month and then they'll sell 80 a month. Uh, yeah, the, for a few months when there's a boom. So if you look at land sales in in uh, major subdivisions around Melbourne when there was that 2015 to 17 boom, you can see not only does the price rocket but the sales rocket. And then when the price is up, you know, typically supply and demand say, well, at higher prices you sell more, but then it stops once price gets up. And it, and so as prices start rolling over, they stop selling again. And so the question. The, the main point of that is, well, there seems to be a built-in speed limit. And then in addition to that, I looked at aggregate company data for listed companies across states where they had eight to 12 different projects. And, and the question there is, well, is that variation I'm observing, does it average out across different areas if we diversify? Uh, and it does, but only to a small degree. And then I looked at council level data for the different councils in Queensland and showed that actually the variation even at a whole council level is much the same. So uh, the point of all that is that there's some kind of built-in speed limit that the market will supply regardless of planning restrictions. So if you want to talk about the effect of planning regulations, it has to go via this market absorption rate, this optimal rate per period that you would produce new housing. So that's my couple yeah, of minutes Yeah, summary. I think that... That's- yeah, I, I see what you're arguing there. Yeah, yeah. So, at any point in time, there is going to be a speed limit. Yep, I think that's uh, that's fair enough. It's like with the uh, with the sale of government bonds, for example. So they don't just go and auction off the whole year's yeah, in one day. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> requirement. Right. That's in right. One the day. market has a finite yeah. depth, right? Yeah, and, and especially in property, your local market has a very. People go, oh, it's very competitive, but in your local area, um, you know, if there's only a few buyers rocking up each week, you you know, you can't really sell faster than that. And if you did want to, you'd have to d- reduce the price dramatically, and that itself might not even work because who wants to buy something that's falling in price? 
right? You've just showed me this is a terrible property asset to buy because you keep decreasing the price on me, right? So, so that's, I think, the catch there. I think um, you know, property markets function like other asset markets. Um, property developers aren't in the business of panicking and to, to reduce price and selling very quickly. And so if we want to talk about cheap and affordable housing options or systems, we've got to acknowledge that limit. And can't, we can't go around saying, oh, up zone and it'll all be fine because we've got a property boom in the whole world, regardless of local planning conditions. There's almost no city you can name right now, um, regardless of whether they've got very generous planning, whether they've got height limits, whether they've got no height limits. Um, Auckland famously in 2016 up zone the whole city and then had the biggest boom, I think, just about in the world between right. 2016 okay. and 2021. Yeah. So that was mine, and uh, yours was the the last one of the last sessions of the day. Yes, Today, just yes. before Joe Stiglitz, you know. Oh, that's opening. right. Yeah, the warm up act. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I like. I actually really like the, your topic because I, you know, I've, I have a strong interest in privatizing public assets and the accounting trickery. Yeah, that goes with well, it. Well, what I thought was bizarre about what Queensland government did. So this is the state government where Cameron and I. Both uh, where we both reside, so uh, in 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 it's the state government uh, where Brisbane is the capital. And uh, what I found odd about what they did was they actually didn't privatise it. They pretended they privatised it. They said if we did privatise it, we could sell it for eight billion dollars. And therefore, even though it's still doing the same thing it did yesterday, yeah. we're now going to treat it as uh, well. We're, we're creating. We're creating this private company. We're converting a government. This was the property agency. titles office, right? Yeah. Where you change when you sell a house, you register the change in ownership, yeah. and it's the Torrens Title System yes. managed at that office. Yeah, 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 that's that's right. Yeah, sorry, I should have mentioned that. And uh, yeah, they've just said, well, this is actually a private company, and we own shares in it, and so therefore we're going to take it out of the general government sector. And we're going to recognize this $8 billion asset on our balance sheet and use it to offset our $40 our billion dollars worth of yeah. debt or whatever it was. And that reduces our net debt. So it, it's an it, accounting trick. That yeah. They, yeah. Uh, I did think it was very interesting. They, they, it's like, we're going we're to privatize. We're not going to change the ownership. We're just going to say that it's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, and, and I guess my point to you was, well, um, you know, the, the other point you were saying is that Queensland has a future fund that does investments in private companies and they were saying that we're not putting it in that fund. Is that? Oh, no, they did. Yeah, they so did it is it in, in that future fund. Yeah, it is in the, the debt retirement fund. They've got... Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, and I think one of the questions in your or comments was that New South Wales got a lot of flack um, last year for doing the same thing and they created this thing called the transport asset holding entity yeah and did you follow that news someone mentioned yes it. yeah i've got to look more into it but so uh, the yeah. basic gist was the same thing they said well this is the department of rail or whatever it's called you know mm. but actually it's a we're going to corporatize it and say it's a private company and so when we subsidize it that's an equity injection right so yeah. that's actually an investment not a cost right so that was this great um big accounting accounting trick to get around their their other 
standard measures of government spending and standard ways that they uh, produce the budget, they're like, yeah. well, no, that's not a cost. That's an equity injection, which of course you could do for any anything mm, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. the government does, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have to have a closer look at that. I guess the point I was trying to make is that I thought this was a good example of just the financial or the public accounting trickery that can go on and uh, and yeah, I think we've as economists we need to be mindful of that. Yeah, I think your point. Um, you said at the beginning that there's a sort of we're we're meant to be sort of reporting in a standardised way. Yeah. You know, and you're comparing governments between countries and budgets and debts. How much does this accounting trick matter? Yeah. When we're comparing Queensland to Western Australia or Australia to New Zealand to Canada. Yeah. Yeah, and it's difficult to know. And while any one of them. You might think in the greater scheme of things, okay, maybe that's not the that's not the biggest deal, but they just all add up, and you just you just don't know. I remember what I was saying about the what was going into the future fund. Uh, so what I was what I was trying to say is that originally they were going to put in liquid assets. Mm-hmm. So the original idea was we would have, uh, I think it was four billion or whatever it was from the defined benefit. Uh, the, the funds set aside to meet the defined benefit superannuation mm-hmm. liability, and they were going to take that out because they were saying, "Well, we had, we've got excess there. We don't need that much to pay the pensions. Uh-huh. We'll put that into this future fund." But they would have been liquid financial assets, so yeah. cash or shares or whatever. But then that they didn't have as much as they expected, and so they couldn't actually put in liquid assets. And so what they then did was said, well, oh, we've got this $8 billion yeah. titles registry. Let's stick that in the future fund. Is it? And it's not the same thing because yeah. it's not it's not actual ready money. It's they're not it's not a liquid asset. No, well it's yeah, it's it's definitely not. Although we did we did later discuss um before we recorded that um you know the a, a cynic might say that um the government is wedged right now in not privatizing any public yeah. assets and they're literally setting this up so when they're out of power, they get the result they want because the next government, it makes it easier for them to then privatize and sell this off because the the structure is already changed. The, the it, own... it certainly does do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, you know, it depends how much you think uh, these political games are being played behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. I'll put a, I'll put a link to... Uh... To both of our papers in the the show notes, so I've got to think more about your housing article because I think, yeah, I think that's a, a fair point about the the speed limit at a point in time. And I've had Peter Tulip on the show before, and I know mm-hmm. Peter's someone you, that you've uh, mm-hmm. you've debated, or you, or I mean, you have a lot of interactions on Twitter and uh, and we in and in person every time. Yep, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, so Peter was here at the conference too, and I think Peter's point is that like, I think he acknowledges that like you're not going to solve the the housing supply uh, shortfall overnight by relaxing restrictions. Because there's just so much construction or so much building that would have to occur. I mean, it'd have to occur over many years. And I think his point is that, well, the problem is we've had these restrictions in place for decades. And so there's been a whole yeah. lot of underbuilding. Yeah. Look, we had a good conversation last night with Peter and 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 was I think there is a hidden mental model that we both have that I can't quite articulate. We've both tried. And and 
uh, one of those um, one of the components of that is um, this competitive element I think in the property market like how fast would we supply what's the real counterfactual because his argument and and it's a common argument is that we've had supply constraints for a long time therefore we don't have enough houses if we had didn't have a supply constraint we would have more dwellings per person and more space than ever before and yet that's actually what we have although prices are high part of that's the interest rate right rents compared to income in the private market are 20 percent they were 20 percent in 1996 so we're talking what's that 26 years ago quarter of a century so not only are rents the same proportion of income and we'd probably expect people to spend roughly the same proportion of income on housing as they do you know there's a fixed budget share result in the cobb douglas function as your income grows but we have bigger houses. We have more more bedrooms mm. and more area and fewer people. And we actually saw that in the recent census. Was, census was interesting because um, last year, the week that we filled it out in August 2021, I predicted that the home ownership rate in the census would go up because it was 65.4% in the 2016 census. And when the data came out a month ago, it was uh, 66.0, so a 0.6% increase. Um, So we got more home ownership and we saw that the number of people per dwelling fell quite a lot as well, partly because of COVID, people sort of spread out a little bit more. Yeah. Um, And we had a bit of a building boom as well in in that period. And so we've got bigger houses, fewer people in them. So the question is, why isn't this the market outcome? Like, surely you've got to tell me why the market outcome is something of even bigger houses and fewer people than what we have. And why would that be the case? That's my. That's where we still disagree, my, myself right. and Peter Tulip, as the as the most active housing supply debaters on Australian social media. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> We'll have to uh, love to have you both on uh, for a for a chat uh, in the future. Yeah, but anyway, sure. we might we'll have to leave it there because we'll we'll wrap up soon because we've got the state of origin uh, game between Queensland and New South Wales uh, coming up. Um, yeah, I thought that was uh, that's been a great discussion. I, d- I just thought of something with Nicole Kagan's paper. Yeah. So you've got that idea that the government could buy it could have bought the shares off. Uh, or could, could have bought, or it could have given, yeah, it could have basically bought the super assets. Yeah, from people. If they wanted right. to cash out their super, then, okay. you, then then the super fund says, okay, we'll give you cash, but the government's got to give us the cash to take a claim on those same assets. Yeah. So yeah. the government would have to borrow the, to to buy the, or to, to, to let them cash out. But your argument would be they would be earning more the government would be earning more from those assets than the cost of the borrowing, giving borrowing was so cheap. Yeah, and also that whatever they earned on those assets is exactly what the people who took the money out of super would have earned. So if you're thinking about a cost to the age pension in the future, well, the government's now got those assets, exactly the same amount of assets that it can use to spend on your age pension. Do you know what I'm saying? Because you don't have yeah. it as super, the government has it. And if you need the age pension, they've got exactly the same amount of money um, that they can give back to you if you qualify for the age pension. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to think. I'll just have to think that through because I'll also have the debt too. 
won't they, to a border? Well, well, although you could think about the the Reserve Bank doing it, perhaps. I mean, that's one that's one thing that could have that could correct, achieve that outcome. Correct. I mean, it's a balance sheet expansion for the government, and it's a contraction for the person who took the cash um, and doesn't have that other asset. Mm. Um, I might write a blog on this. I think it'd be good. I'd love to see it. Um, and I might send it thinking. with this. Nicole was the author Nicole of Nicole Kagan, yeah. Yeah, I'll reach out because um, I thought she had the right idea of testing all these scenarios. Um, yeah. yeah. There you go. That's what conferences are for, meeting people and Absolutely. sharing ideas. And, uh, very good. Okay. Cameron Murray uh, from University of Sydney. Thanks so much for your time. It's been really great chatting. It was, it's been amazing catching up with you at this conference. Uh, it's been great. Yeah, no, it has been great to hang out, Gene. Good okay. to talk. Thanks, Cameron. Okay. That's the end of this episode of Economics Explored. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please tell your family and friends and leave a comment or give us a rating on your podcast app. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can feel free to send them to contact at economicsexplored.com and we'll aim to address them in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Until next week, goodbye.